Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. So, Father, now as we come to your word, would you show us yourself in it? Show us exactly what you would have for us this morning. And show us that you are our portion. You are the blessing, and in you, we find our home and our rest. Not in the world, but in your promise. So do that in our hearts this morning. And by faith, show us Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's a real joy to be back up here preaching this morning. Um, As I've studied this text for this morning's message, it's kind of been a journey a little bit for me. Uh, The first few times I read it, I was thinking to myself, what in the world am I going to say from this chapter for 35 minutes? (laughs) It isn't that, uh, that I don't think, you know, this is the word of God and it's all profitable and there's something for God to show us of him. But I was like, well, you know, Jacob settles his sons in Egypt and then the Egyptians sell themselves to Pharaoh and then Jacob tells Joseph to bury him in Canaan. All right, let's go home. You know, that's, that's kind of pretty straight. This seems like a straightforward text, right? But as I read it and as I studied it some more, <clears throat> I started to see that this seemingly straightforward chapter really is highlighting a journey itself. What we see here is an imperfect, <clears throat> sinful, but redeemed and faithful saint, Jacob, and his family journeying through life, through the many ups and downs and toils and struggles that have come along the way. And now they've come to another foreign land, right? They're in Egypt now. And throughout all of that journey, Jacob doesn't lose sight of the fact that wherever he may lay his head, wherever he might momentarily call home, he isn't really home apart from God and his promise and presence. So how many of you have seen the movies of The Lord of the Rings, right? Several? Good. Okay. I'm going to use an analogy from there. So in the, at the beginning of The Fellowship of the Ring, we see Bilbo sitting at his table and he's writing down uh, a book and he's recounting his journey that he took many years before away from the safety and the comfort of the Shire, his home through many dangers and hazards and ups and downs, battles with trolls and orcs and dragons and over days and weeks and months. He was on this journey and wherever he rested his head on this long journey, he never forgot the rest of home. And so he writes down his story and the first page that we see is titled There and Back Again, A Hobbit's Tale. (laughs) There and Back Again. What we're going to see this morning in our text is Jacob confessing that his days on earth have been few and difficult as a sojourner on earth. And now he enters this new foreign land, a new land of sojourning, leaving behind the land of his forefathers, and he continues to keep his eyes on the promise of God's presence found in his ultimate place with him. God will keep his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob And while they're in Egypt, God blesses them. We're going to see that this morning. 
But even through the prospering that Jacob experiences in a foreign land, Jacob declares that God's promise and God's presence is better than the wealth of a thousand foreign kingdoms. I think that God is calling us in the midst of the promises and temptations and the siren calls of this world that we find ourselves in to remember that we're not yet home and to hold fast to God's promises for ultimate blessing at his side for all of eternity, no matter what life throws at us. So I think that we see that Jacob's story here is kind of in a way our story this morning. On this journey, sojourners in a foreign land clinging to God's promises of true home, true rest, true blessing found in God himself. So let's see it in the text. Point number one, home is with God, not the world. In verses 1 to 12, we see God using Joseph as kind of a a shrewd statesman in the court of Pharaoh, subtly planting the seeds of blessing his brothers and father with the blessed of the land of Egypt, best of the land of Egypt. Remember last week when Daniel preached, he showed us how Jacob's brothers and father, they made it, they made the journey from Canaan to Egypt at the invitation of Pharaoh himself. He said, come, bring your family. And Pharaoh told Joseph that the best of the land would belong to them in Egypt. And so at the end of chapter 46, we saw that Joseph and his family came into the land of Goshen. Now, Goshen is a fertile part of Egypt that has lots of pastures and livestock. Pharaoh's own livestock are there. And Joseph prepared his brothers for exactly what they should say when they come in to meet Pharaoh in chapter 47. Remember, in verses 33 and 34 last week, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation, you shall say... Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, this was really smart of Joseph to tell his brothers to say, for a few reasons. First of all, he knew that if his brothers said that they were shepherds, that that would be really unthreatening to Pharaoh. Shepherds were looked down upon in Egypt, right? Every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. They didn't have any power. They didn't have any real wealth. Therefore, his brother settling in Egypt wouldn't be seen as a real you know, risk of uprising or rebellion or anything like that. Just humble shepherds seeking settlement. But I think Joseph also knew that the land of Goshen was where many of Pharaoh's herds were. So not only were these humble shepherds unthreatening to Pharaoh, but they might even prove useful. (laughs) Which in God's sovereignty would only sweeten the deal for Pharaoh to place them in Goshen. So I think Joseph really knew what he was doing. So we get to this meeting of the brothers and Pharaoh. So look again at verse one of our chapter 47. Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come in to the land of Goshen. From Canaan, they are now in the land of Goshen. So notice how Joseph subtly drops the fact to Pharaoh that they're already in Goshen. That's where they are. They've come from Canaan. They're in Goshen. Verses 2 to 6. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And he said, they said to the Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. 
And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Don't you just love it when a plan comes together? This is great. Pharaoh gives them the best of the land, fertile Goshen. He says, go settle there. And they've only been there two minutes in Egypt, and already they're gainfully employed by Pharaoh watching over his, his flocks. It's really amazing. God is sovereignly using Joseph's wise leadership to provide for Jacob's family. And yet, <clears throat> notice the wording that his brothers use in verse 4, right? They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn. So that word, just, it literally means to dwell temporarily, temporarily live. We have come to temporarily live in the land of Goshen. So when you stop to think about that, that's really amazing. Pharaoh has given them land and jobs and the best of Egypt at their fingertips. They could shift their mindset from Canaan being their home to Egypt is home now, right? That wouldn't be out of the question. We've got some sweet new jobs, some sweet new digs here. What's Canaan again? Egypt forever. But no. Their attitude is that of sojourners who know that they're not really home. They're not really home. Egypt is great. It has green pastures, good jobs, provision and wealth and food and prosperity, everything that they need. But God has already promised a place. And so they know that they're sojourners. They trust in his promise. Egypt isn't home. Egypt isn't home. And this is further shown when Jacob comes in then to talk with Pharaoh. <clears throat> so after the brothers come in, they see the king, they talk with him. Joseph brings his father into the royal court. So look again at verses 7 to 9. <clears throat> then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. <clears throat> so the patriarch, favored recipient of the covenant promise of God, he humbly stands before Pharaoh and he blesses him. That's kind of cool. In the, in the eyes of the world, it might seem like Pharaoh is clearly the greater of the two men. I mean, he's basically the most powerful on the planet at this time. So shouldn't he be the one that's blessing Jacob? And yet Jacob blesses Pharaoh. So here's what commentator Bruce Waltke says, and he says it this way in his commentary. The Pharaoh is secure, royal, and condescending yet dependent on Jacob for blessing. Jacob, precarious and completely dependent on Pharaoh's goodwill, is the honorable benefactor of divine blessing. In Exodus, the sons of Israel will have the better part. It's better to have the blessing of God than the whole world at your fingertips. So Jacob blesses Pharaoh and then Pharaoh asks him, how old are you? How many of the, are the days of your life? 
Jacob responds in verses 9 to 10, the days of the years of my, what? Sojourning. Have been 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and I've not attained to the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. Now, that's an amazing couple of verses. He confesses that his life has been hard. It's been evil. Even though he's nearing the end of his life, he hasn't reached the old age that Abraham and Isaac has reached, had reached. So think through all the ups and the downs and the hardships that we've seen along the way in Jacob's life, right? It's been, it's been quite a life <laughs> that we've seen for jo- Jacob. Even though he hasn't lived as long as Abraham did, it's been hard, which colors what he's about to say next about where he lived, the years of his sojourning. <clears throat> not only is Jacob joining his sons and saying that Egypt is not home, it's not his permanent home, he's there temporarily, but actually declares that all 130 years of his life, even those spent in the promised land, have been spent as a sojourner on a journey home. He has been in Canaan. That's God's land, right? God's place, enjoying God's presence, and yet he's still on a pilgrimage. And the days of his father Isaac and grandfather Abraham were spent as sojourners as well, right? In the days of their sojourning. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. I want us to see something in verses 8 to 10 and verse 13. Hebrews 11, 8 to 10 and 13. So here's what the author of Hebrews has to say about the the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all right? Verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of a place, out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was looking forward to the city of God. And then verse 13, these all died in faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Jacob knew that his ultimate home was in God's presence. The promised land was God's earthly fulfillment of that promise, right? But the land, that land has an ultimate fulfillment coming in the new heavens and the new earth where we are with God in person. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all looking towards that heavenly city, having died as strangers and exiles on the earth. That's how Jacob is coming into this meeting with Pharaoh. That's how he's entering this land of Egypt with all of its promises spread before him. Food in the midst of famine, jobs for his sons. God is my home, not Egypt, not this earth. He fixed his eyes on his true home and trusted in God's promise. And this world isn't our home either, right? It isn't. Your city isn't your home. 
Your house isn't your home. Your family and job and money and everything else isn't your home. Sure, it's our earthly home in one sense, right? And those are all good things. But it's not our ultimate home. Your home is with God. And you are a sojourner heading towards a heavenly city. So, one of the questions that's before us this morning is, is that how we're living? Is that how I'm living? Is that how you're living? Where is our hope and comfort and rest found? And I know for me, I'm just being honest, it isn't always perfectly in God. It just isn't. It's easy to make a home and find my rest in so many other things in this world, even good things, right? Good gifts from God. But I need to remind myself that God is my refuge and my portion forever, and I'm heading home to be with him. That's where my ultimate home is. Home isn't this world, it's in him. So we'll come back to that later on at the end, all right? God is our home. Now, point number two, blessing is in God, not in the world. So look with me, starting in verse 11. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, which is another name for Goshen, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his fathers, his brothers, and all of his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. So Joseph guides Pharaoh's decisions, and his family gets land and jobs and food in Goshen, which is incredibly amazing given what comes next. Moses, the author of Genesis, wants us to see God's covenant-keeping blessing of Jacob and his family in stark contrast to life outside of the promises of God shown in what happens to the Egyptians. So in verses 13 to 26, we read this incredible account. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's this account of the famine in Egypt. It's bad. It's really bad. So the Egyptians come to Joseph, and they basically give more and more and more of themselves to Pharaoh in exchange for food and provision. So it starts with their money. They give all the money in exchange for food. And then when that's gone, the Egyptians give their livestock. And then when that's gone, they give their bodies and their land to Pharaoh. So basically everything that they have, including their very selves and their freedom, now belongs to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh, in the midst of all of this, becomes blessed, right? Pharaoh keeps gaining all this stuff. There's a lot we could say about that, but remember just a couple verses ago when Jacob blesses Pharaoh? So I think we're meant to see Pharaoh's prospering through Joseph's actions as that blessing coming to pass and as kind of a fulfillment of the promise that was given to Abraham years and years and years ago. Remember that promise? Chapter 12, verse 13, God tells Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. That was the promise that was given to Abraham generations ago. And Jacob is now the heir of that promise. And Pharaoh blesses Jacob with the best of the land. So God blesses Pharaoh through Jacob and through Joseph. So who is it that's giving the blessing? God. God is the one 
where the blessing is always found. It's always found in God. And this is even more starkly seen in Israel's fate in contrast to the Egyptians. So this, this gradual servitude that the Egyptians see themselves walking in, giving more and more and more of themselves, and so they don't have any possessions left. That's bracketed by verses 11 and 12 and verse 27. What do we see in those verses? We see the statement that Jacob and his sons are granted land and food and wealth and possessions, right? Israel and his sons get stuff. The Egyptians have all their stuff taken away. Israel and his sons get stuff, right? That's the bracket. The great nation of Israel has their money and their livestock and land and even their freedom taken away while Israel retains all of those things. And we're meant to see that contrast. God does the blessing and it's found in faithfulness to him, in trusting his promise and his covenant faithfulness, not in the world. Now, hear me very clearly what I am not saying. I am not saying that if you follow God and trust in his promises that you're going to receive material wealth and land and jobs and physical prosperity like Jacob and his sons, all right? That's not what I'm saying. What's happening here in Genesis is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to make Abraham into a great nation through whom the whole world will be blessed, right? That's that fulfillment happening. But through the line of promise, through Judah, one of Jacob's sons, will come a savior, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will bless all who trust in him and his promise in such a way that everything that happens in life, hear that, he's going to bless us in such a way that everything that happens in life will work for their ultimate blessing. That's what Romans 8.28 says, right? All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. How many things? All things. Here's how R. Kent Hughes says it in his commentary. Here's what he says. <clears throat> Everything we endure and enjoy, all of our relationships, all of our honors, all our defects, all our serendipities, all our disappointments, and all our gains and losses are meant for our ultimate prosperity. That's a sweet promise. That is a sweet blessing from God that we have in Christ. Through faith, we are united to Christ our Savior in such a way that everything that's his, every spiritual blessing becomes ours, and all things work together for our ultimate good. And that st stands in stark contrast to the blessings of the world that can be taken away like that, right? Taken away, just like that. The Egyptians were given food, and they survived a terrible famine, right? They were provided for, but their land and their money and their livestock and freedom were all taken. But Jacob and his family trusted God, and they trusted him in such a way that even in the midst of their prospering, right, their earthly prospering, they knew that they were not home. That's what trusting God's blessing looks like. They didn't trust in the provision. They looked to God, the giver. They looked to him and his covenant promise. The blessing was in God, not in the materials of the world that could be just taken away whenever. God providing for Israel here is pointing us to that ultimate reality. 
The blessing is found in God, not in the world. So don't look for the blessing in the world. <laughs> look for it in God. For all of us, in Christ, if all of those things are stripped from us as well, all of our money and possessions and everything that we have, then we have the blessing that God is working all things for our good, good uniting us to Christ by faith. That's why around here you'll always hear us saying there is nothing up for grabs ultimately in Christ. Nothing. We lose everything that's working for our ultimate good. We suffer, that's gain. We die, home with God. So, that's the question. Where are you looking for your ultimate blessing? And I want you to think really carefully about that question because it was convicting for me <laughs> this week as I was preparing. <clears throat> it's so easy to receive the good gifts of God in this world in such a way that they become not a means to the ultimate blessing of God himself, but as the ultimate good itself. It's really easy to do. Our hearts are idle factories. We do it all the time. So here's just a few, they were uncomfortable for me. Here's a few uncomfortable ones that I was thinking through this week. <clears throat> family and friends. Those are really good gifts from God, right? Our family and our friends. But if they become idols, they can't bear the weight of being your ultimate blessing. They just can't bear the weight. And so the good gift, if it becomes an idol, will become a source of discontentment and disappointment as they crumble under the weight of idolatry. No one, no one in your family, your friends, your spouse, your kids, no one can perfectly meet your expectations and no one can give you everything that you think you need that only God can give you. No human can do that. They were never meant to bear that weight. It's only when we look to God for our blessing that the good gift of friends and family can be what they're supposed to be, right? <clears throat> Same with money. Same with our houses, our possessions, our hobbies, right? Anything that we have in this world. It isn't a bad thing to own a house. It isn't a bad thing to save your money in a wise way. It isn't a bad thing to maintain your car or whatever it is, you know, for you. For me, it's musky fishing equipment and lures. <laughs> I love collecting them. I love modifying the lures in specific, for specific fishing situations. I love sharpening the hooks while I sit in my big chair in my garage. It's super fun. I love it. But whatever it is for you, your possessions can't bear the weight of idolatry. They can't. They can't be your ultimate blessing or they will disappoint you. And then when those things are threatened, right, when your idols are threatened, when your possessions are threatened, you respond in panic and you do whatever it takes to cling to those things because you think that you need them. You think that you can't live without them. You think that that's where your ultimate good is found. Or how about our country? I love our country. We live in a good country. It's a great gift from God to live in a free land with rights and privileges and everything that comes with being an American. But America cannot bear the weight of being our ultimate blessing and hope. It just can't. If your love of country becomes an idol, then what happens? 
then when our preferred way of life, our comforts and our freedoms are threatened, we act with a kind of panic, right? Lashing out in anger towards people who we see as threatening, but that we're ultimately called to love. That's what happens when any idol is threatened, right? You do anything to preserve it. But hear this. If America ceases to exist tomorrow, I hope it doesn't, but if it does, if we lose all of our freedoms and liberties and all that comes with that, have we lost God's blessing? No, we have not. It isn't up for grabs in Christ. And so all of those losses will ultimately work for our good. Jacob doesn't look to his newfound home of Egypt as his blessing. Rich country full of opportunity, money, and enticements, he continued to trust in God. So is that where you and I are looking for our blessing as well? It has to be God. It has to be God himself. He's our portion. Or the good gifts will work against us instead of for us. Jacob is looking to God. And this is perhaps most clearly seen in our third point. It's going to be quick, don't worry. Point three, trusting the faithfulness of God, not the world. So look at verses 28 to 31. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. (laughs) And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon his bed. So, first of all, notice that it says that Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years before he died. He was reunited to Joseph in Egypt 17 years, his beloved son caring for him which is the same amount of years that Jacob cared for Joseph from his birth until he was sold into slavery at age 17. So that's interesting, right? 17 years with Joseph at the beginning, 17 years now at the end. The selling into slavery, the grief of Jacob, the trials of Joseph, Joseph's exaltation into Egypt, and their reunion, I think that all of this is meant, we're meant to see that this is God's ordaining hand in the life of Jacob and Joseph. 17 years at the beginning, 17 years at the end, and it is God who declares the beginning from the end and brings about calamity and well-being, which is what Isaiah 45, 7 says. Jacob has had both of much, much of both, but all of it was God's faithfulness to his own promises, right? And through God's faithful, sovereign hand in Jacob's life, he finishes his race by firmly trusting in God's greater promises. He wants to be buried in Canaan. Bruce Waltke says, to the end, Jacob remains committed to the faith of his fathers, expressed by his commitment to his body to the promised land. He is not bamboozled by the prosperity in Egypt. I love that. R. Kent Hughes says, The reason for the demand was that burying his remains in Canaan was a declaration of his faith in the promise of the land of Abraham and his seed forever. Abraham had purchased the tomb for Sarah in faith. He himself had been buried next to her in faith. 
Isaac's bones had been laid alongside theirs in faith, and like them, Jacob in faith looked toward the ultimate prosperity. I love that. The bottom line, as we close here, is that Jacob had come to believe that trusting the faithfulness of God was better than anything else. The world isn't faithful. In fact, the world tries to blind us from the faithfulness of God. Last week uh, in church, we sang a simple song during communion. I wonder if you remember it. The words just say, though the earth may try to satisfy my heart, though the earth may try to tell me you're not faithful, though the earth may try to blind me from your goodness, you shine through. You're the only one who fills me up. That's what Jacob trusted. He knew he was sojourning. He had gone there on his journey, but not yet back again, right? He's on the journey, going there, not yet home. So by saying, bring my body back again to the promised land, he was declaring that by faith, he was trusting in the ultimate home that God has in store for him. And that home is our home as well. That's what the land promise has always been ultimately pointing to. We see it so beautifully in Revelation. Revelation chapter 22. The new heavens and the new earth, stripped of all sin, recreated to be the permanent dwelling place of God with man. God's presence with God's people in God's place. That's our home. And God's faithfulness, not ours, but God's, will get us there. So are you trusting in that faithfulness? So our final question this morning is, where are we most at home? Where do you feel most at home? Is it a certain place? Is it a a town or maybe a house that you grew up in? Is it around a certain people, right? Like your close family or your friends? And I'm not saying that it's bad for us to feel at home here on earth in certain places more than others, right? That's natural. That's a God-given feeling that he uses for our good. But like everything else in life, that feeling cannot be your ultimate blessing. It's meant to point past itself to the home that we have coming when we see Christ face to face. And so in that sense, we're never meant to feel totally, completely at home here on earth, are we? No. No. We should always have this feeling that this isn't all that there is. No matter how good it gets, (laughs) we're not there yet. We're on a journey. So 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Sojourners and exiles. The day of visitation is coming, right? Christ is coming again. We believe that. That's why we're gathered here today. Christ will unite heaven and earth. But until then... Just like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we are strangers and aliens in a foreign land. We're on that journey. We're on the way there, but we've not finished the back again yet. And right now, 
through faith in Jesus, you can find rest in Jesus Christ. You can. You can make your home with him right now. Think about the ways that the world has failed to satisfy you. Think about the ways that you've never felt truly home. There's something that's off. There's something that's missing. You can find it in Jesus right now. That's the fight of faith that we fight every day. So cling to him in such a way that no matter what happens on this journey of life, no matter where you rest your head, you are home with God in Christ. Lord, I pray that that would be the case for all of us, that we would ultimately find our home with you, that we would find our rest with you, and that we would look to the day where we will see you face to face. Our faith will become sight and we'll be home. Work that in our hearts today. Help us to fight our idols, to put things in the proper places in our hearts so that you are reigning supreme and we are finding our hope in you. And sustain us by your faithfulness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.